You are listening to Chthonia, the podcast of the Dark Feminine. Chthonia's logo was designed by J.R. Malpair. Background music is Phantasm by Kevin McLeod. Hello, and welcome to Chthonia. I am your host, Breege Burke. And this week we are going to talk about, um, we're getting towards the end of the Mahavidyas now. In fact, um, I think there's only um, one more after this. Uh, But this week we are going to talk about Bhuvaneshwari. Okay, now we talked about Lalita Tripura Sundari uh, last week, uh, or I should say two weeks ago. And uh, Lalita Tripura Sundari is, you know, what we're going to find with Bhuvaneshvidi is that she has a lot of the same characteristics of uh, Tripura Sundari. Um, now, Bhuvaneshvidi is, there's, it, this is a little bit of a difficult podcast for me to put together when I was doing my research, mainly because Bhuvaneshvidi is, um, she doesn't. She doesn't have a whole lot of mythology, and she doesn't have a whole lot of identifying characteristics. She seems to be more of an expression of an abstract. Um, well, maybe. Well, actually, that's not quite true. It's not that she's abstract, but she's more of an expression of something that is just more um, perceived on a more esoteric or on a more abstract level, rather than someone who is. Uh, rather than a goddess who has a full story or mythology, the way that we see, for example, with Shiva or with Kali or with, um, you know, Vishnu and Brahma, any of these other gods, there's, there's, you know, Durga. There's a whole, like I said, there's a whole thing about Durga. Um, Although Bhuvanesh, well, Bhuvaneshri uh, does have some kind of relationship to Durga, but she is, she seems to be more of an aspect of these goddesses rather than, um, too much of a deity in her own right. Nonetheless, I think there's some things to talk about here. Now, Bhuvaneshvidi is the goddess of the visible material world, and her name is from two words, Bhuvanam and Ishwiri. Bhuvanam basically refers to uh, Bhuv, you know, Bhuv, the uh, the universe, okay, in the world. Uh, if you recite the Gayatri mantra that goes Om Bhu, Bhuva, Svaha, those are the three worlds, Bhu, Bhuva, and Svaha. And uh, so she is... Um, she is the the the, the queen. Ishwari implies mistress, ruler. Um, <clears throat> I mean, Ishwara means lord, so Ishwari is sort of the female equivalent of that. But there's an, there's a sense of her being either the empress or the queen of the universe, <clears throat> which again connects her very much to Tripura Sundari, who has a very similar role. Now, the difference between Bhuvaneshvari and Tripura Sundari is that I think Bhuvaneshvari is more of the expression of Tripura Sundari. Now, she's the fourth Mahavidya in the list. And as we had kind of mentioned, you know, as I've been mentioning as I go along, even though I'm not doing them in order, they do, the order actually sort of does matter. Like, it's almost like one, you know, Kali is sort of the, the first one, and the emanations outward, outward from there are more more manifest, okay? Because um, Kali has a lot to do with dissolution. Of course, so does Dumavati, and she's number five. But, um... But Dumavati is also connected to the void uh, as it appears before creation. And as we'll see, Bhuvaneshvedi also has something to do with that. So that may be why they're connected. Um, <clears throat> now, if uh, Kali, Tara, and Tripura Sundari are the first three Mahavidyas and Bhuvaneshvedi is the fourth, I would go as far as to suggest that Bhuvaneshvedi is the material expression of the first three. 
Okay, she's she's the material world. Now she's I, I would say that she's she's generally regarded as an auspicious and a good goddess, but um, but like any of the goddesses, she does have um, you know different characteristics, and a lot of it just has to do with um, you know it, it it karmic in a way. It's it's a matter of action and consequences. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm still allergy ridden. Um, it's uh, so she is. She's an expression of the uh, of the earth. Uh, she's related to uh, Prakriti, which is the name that um, the the Sanskrit word for nature. And as that expression, you know, she has that that characteristic of of the earth mother that is nourishing and supportive. On the other hand, um, when the earth is uh, taken advantage of, you know, um, when uh, there's um, <clears throat> you know, uh, there, there's a trying to trying to find if I'm my word here. They're they're not um, the you know but, you know the the Earth Mother when there's when there's a problem when when things are out of balance, uh, she will actively seek to rebalance things. Okay, so um, <clears throat> and that may that that sometimes is translated. Uh, where she ended up appearing in, in kind of a warrior aspect. Now, there's no specific mythology of her being a warrior, but she may be an aspect, say, again, for instance, of a goddess like Durga or some of the other uh, Mahavidyas or Matrikas that appear um, <clears throat> in the role of someone who is is there to rebalance the earth. Okay. So, okay, we know she's the goddess of the visible world. She remains unmanifest until the world's created. And... Um, is said to come from Tripura Sundari. So let me uh, tell you a little bit about her origins. Um, David Kinsley, he only has a very short origin myth for her, but, um, <clears throat> and it's more contemporary. It's something that's mentioned in contemporary sources. We don't find it in ancient sources, where she doesn't seem to be mentioned at all. Um, <clears throat> and again, because it may not be that she is a specific goddess that one might appeal to, say, as an Ishtar Devata or a chosen deity, it may be that she is more of a, um, you know, she, she's definitely usually part of the Sri Vidya temples um, to um, Tripura Sundari. Bhuvaneshwari is usually included in those temples as as another deity of worship. Um, but she's she's very um, she's very obscure otherwise, um, aside from her association with the Mahavidyas. So here's David Kinsley on her origin. He says, The only myth I've found that mentions the origin or emergence of Bhuvaneshvati appears in a contemporary Hindi source. It says that the begin in the beginning, the sun, Surya, appeared in the heavens. Rishis, or sages, that offered Soma, a sacred plant, so that the world might be created. Then the sun created the three worlds, the Lokas or Bhuvanas. At that time, Sodashi, or Tripura Sundari, was the main power or Shakti through whom Surya created them. So... <clears throat> the sun creates the earth through the power of Tripura Sundari. Uh, having created the worlds or having empowered the sun to do so, the goddess assumed an appropriate form and pervaded and directed the triple world. In this form, she became known as Bhuvaneshvati, mistress of the world. So she's a form of Tripura Sundari. So that's why I say she's an expression. The uh, author also says that Bhuvaneshvari remains unmanifest till the world is created, which I've just said. That is... Bhuvaneshvari is primarily or particularly associated with the visible created world. Um, and they also emphasize her as being a form of uh, Tripura Sundari as Sodashi. 
And that's interesting, too, that the power of the sun, because Sodashi, um, as we discussed in the podcast, Antripurasundri, at least in, in one aspect, seems to be identified with the moon and the phases of the moon. So the, the power of the sun working through the moon, that's that's kind of different from what you might expect, although I'm sure that's not really what is meant there because Tripura Sundari does represent sort of that um, supreme primal power that's behind things. They're both connected to Adi Parashakti, that primordial um, consciousness or force that pervades the universe. Um, now let me give you a little bit of a description of Bhuvaneshvari, again also from Kinsley. Um, he sa- it says, um, her complexion is vermilion in color. She has three eyes and wears a crown resplendent with jewels. She has the disc of the moon on her brow and has a smiling face. Her breasts are high and firm. In her two hands, she holds a red lotus and a bowl filled with jewels. <clears throat> she is very peaceful and amiable. Her right foot rests on a jewel jar. In this way, one should meditate upon the Supreme Mother Goddess. She is the color of lightning and is seated on a red lotus. She has three eyes and is naked. She is adorned with pearls of many colors. She has 20 arms, which she holds a sword, spear, club, disc, conch, bow, arrow, scissors, trident, mace, garland, and makes the boon-conferring gesture and the assurance gesture. She has a smiling face. These are two separate descriptions. But what we see with uh, Bhuvaneshvari is that the um, there's, there's certain characteristics. Sometimes she's portrayed as, as appearing with different, different colors, as we'll see, you know, in her skin. Um, but she doesn't have any, like, there's no particular animal that seems to be associated with her, um, again, because she's the nature goddess. She's, she's associated with everything. The only things that, that seem to be listed, um, that, as, as symbols that are always included in her images are a goad and a noose, okay, and, which is, a lot of the goddesses do carry that, and a red lotus and a jeweled drinking bowl, now, um, we're going to talk a little bit about the goat and the noose, which tend to represent discipline and control. Um, now, the red lotus and the jeweled drinking bowl both symbolize wealth, prosperity, growth, abundance. They're symbols of that. They're symbols of the, the sort of potency. There's, there's a sexual element to them as well, although Bhuvaneshvati is considered to be unmarried or unmatched. She's um, not necessarily, that doesn't that necessarily mean she's a virgin goddess in the sense that we think of it in the West. But she is, you know, she does not have a spouse that she, you know, answers to or anything like that, which is typical of all the Mahavidyas. The crescent moon on the forehead represents the power of replenishment and sort of the regenerative power in nature. Okay, because, you know, just like I said, as the moon frequently becomes a symbol for that because it waxes and it wanes and it goes full and then it, it's, it's so it seems like it's full and then it's empty, you know, in, in the way that it appears. Um... So she represents the world, but she also transcends the world, okay? Um, and also I'm going to mention she's associated with the Bija Mantra Hrim, uh, which I'm going to talk about um, a little later on. Okay, so the goat in the noose, I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, I'm going to read a little bit from Kinsley. He says, uh, the goat in the noose held by Bhuvaneshvati suggests control. According to an informant in Varnashi, the goat means that <clears throat> she controls evil forces, or inner hindrances, such as anger, lust, or any obsession that interferes with spiritual development. The noose, according to the same informant, symbolizes the different bodily sheaths that hide and therefore bind the spiritual essence of a person, the Atman. The goddess therefore helps discipline the devotee with her goad, while at the same time she is the power that masks one's true identity. She is both liberating knowledge and maya. 
She both gives liberation and withholds it. Another source interprets the goad, the noose, and the two hand gestures, conferring boons and fearlessness, which is typical of a lot of the... the um, uh, Mahavidyas and the Matrikas, in terms of the stages of spiritual endeavor. Sadhana. The noose and goad help sadhaks control their indriyas, <clears throat> which are sensory perceptions. And when this is accomplished through her grace, they achieve fearlessness and receive blessings from her. Dharma, or proper moral behavior, is also a form of control, and Bhuvaneshwari uses it to guide people. In this sense, her noose and goad may symbolize dharma. Okay. So on that, we have a goddess of nature whose symbols seem to represent control and order. Um, <clears throat> so, so what exactly do we, we take away from that? Well, one of the things I could, I could say about that is that when we talk about order or orderliness here, um, there's the idea of, you know, it's, it, she's a goddess who's sort of of nature and in some sense is passive. Um, but may also be, so she's, she can, she can provide liberation or she can withhold it. So even though she's passive, there's, there's a certain amount of activity that she engages in, uh, in terms of balancing things. Now, in terms of liberation versus Maya, in, you know, so in a sense, <clears throat> she is, has control over both. And that's, that, and it may seem a little paradoxical at first, but if we think about, how, um, for example, somebody who um, in, in, is involved in magical practice or happens to be involved in any kind of, um, you know, magical order um, probably understands that, um, uh, you know, the, the, there's basically the idea, Crowley certainly talks about it, where you're, the idea is that you are free. You are a free person. Um, but in order to be free, you must restrict yourself. And that is, uh, <clears throat> that's just kind of, I mean, that's very obvious in social order. The reason that we have certain rules and laws and, and so forth is to keep people from just randomly and chaotically, you know, I don't know, killing and looting each other and, you know, doing all this kind of stuff. Because human beings, even though human beings have a lot of good qualities, we also have a lot of not so good ones. And <clears throat> if you look, watch human behavior, especially in groups, there's not always the guarantee that human beings are always going to behave according to what we might think of as ethically the best side of them. Um, you know, because people are greedy, they want power, they are corrupted, they become obsessed, they become, I mean, um, lust doesn't have to be a negative thing, but when it turns into an obsession and an and addiction, you know, that, that can be a problem. Anything that gets out of balance like that, that's what the demonic forces tend to represent in Hinduism is they tend to represent these things that are, you know, um, <clears throat> they don't necessarily have to start out as, as evil, but they, they become so far out of balance that they end up harming everybody. So there's the idea of keeping people from going in that direction. And, um, you know, but there's also the sense that, you know, y you can also have that freedom. See, Tantra sort of represents in the engaging of forbidden things, if people don't know how to, you know, don't have that sense of control or, or don't have the proper perspective on the things of the world, you can go out and you can enjoy the world. I mean, uh, certainly we saw that in the Tara uh, podcast that, you know, you can, <clears throat> you know, you show a version of the Buddha who's carousing and drinking with women. It's not that life isn't to be enjoyed. And that's really the thing. It's sort of like, okay, life is to be enjoyed, but you don't want to... Um, 
you don't want to go you need to you need to keep it in balance because if you if you just do that all the time recklessly eventually you know that's very destructive and you know so there's a sense of how does one maintain you know you don't want to there there's we tend to have an attitude in the west that you have to one one is sinful and one is not and or and even and you even hear about it in in certain buddhist and hindu teachings too like abstain from this and and focus on that um however but you will find that in these other kinds of uh, and that's why i'm saying it's funny because all these these um sort of tantric manifestations and so forth are considered to be very secret and very you know can't, can't outsiders can't know about it well i don't know what's so secret about it it's just life is to be enjoyed and but to be enjoyed to the point that it's not um destructive of the earth or destructive of you you know there's no reason why you can't enjoy life but you know you need a certain amount of self-discipline to maintain your body to maintain your mind to maintain your relationships with others so i think the goat in the noose tends to represent the fact that yeah that, that within nature there needs to be a certain amount of order i mean dharma ideally is supposed to um provide that if you you know if you if you act according to your dharma then you are acting rightly no matter what you're doing um if you remember from the um Srimad Bhagavatam, the story of Krishna and Arjuna, which is a very famous story, where Arjuna has to fight, but he has to fight his brother, and he doesn't want to. And Krishna says, you go and fight your brother, because it's not, he's not up to you. Your brother's going to die one day anyway. This is not up to you to decide. Your dharma is to be a warrior. And people get very freaked out by that, because they're like, that promotes war. It's like, no, that's his dharma. He's from the warrior caste. That's, that's what he does. So the idea is that, and that's, that's an idea that we don't think about. Because even the people who are total jerks in our society, I mean, they may be playing out a role that they're supposed to play, okay? Even though that may be a role that um, um, we don't like or is problematic to us, okay? Uh, this may be part of what the struggle is. Uh, so, yeah, and, and life is a big play. Um, but the whole Maya portion is that, yeah, a lot of it's just very illusory, you know? Um, so anyway... Um, not to go too far off on that tangent, I'm going to have a little more to say on that later on. But Bhuvaneshvari, so yes, he's a goddess of nature who also attempts to keep things in balance. Now, uh, as Kali represents time, okay, we've talked about the goddess Kali as time, Bhuvaneshvari represents space, okay? And um, so it, when you function in the sphere of time, when you function outside of eternity, as we do, that's how our perceptions are. We perceive things in three dimensions. So we are, that's another kind of limitation that we have. We can't, you know, get beyond that. Sometimes people who take certain types of psychedelic drugs might get beyond that. People who, um, you, know, uh, <clears throat> you know, sometimes people just, you know, through, may, may just have a very open psyche that is able to pick up things outside of that people who suffer from certain kinds of mental illness probably also see outside of that we tend to see them as delusional or hallucinating or crazy because we don't experience it um but that doesn't necessarily mean you know in terms of what we consider the normal everyday functioning we may consider them as such but it may be that whatever their brain filtering system is it's not it's not working. I've always felt that the brain itself is very limiting. The whole idea is it filters out aspects of reality that would overwhelm you. And that's what tends to happen is that one gets overwhelmed by the contents that are, are beyond that. There's no way that the world consists of everything that we just see. 
Um, there's way more to it than that. So when people try to tell me that all other things, ha-ha, all that other stuff, you know, um, about the possible existence of spirits or other things, oh, that's, that's all holy. Well, you know what? I say, how the hell do you know? You know, just because you can't measure it in a laboratory doesn't mean that it doesn't exist or that it isn't, um, that it isn't part of reality. There are many layers to reality. I mean, certainly even certain parts of science. We talk about multiverses. We talk about multiple dimensions. You don't know what's out there. And people will experience it in different ways. That's not something you can test and measure. You could, you could gather that information in a sociological way, but you can't, um, you know, these people can't go and prove that that happened if it's not your experience. Um, but reality is, is, is very multidimensional, and to try to treat it like it's literally only the things that we can see and measure, um, <clears throat> that's, that's missing the point entirely as far as I'm concerned. Um, but, you know, but we, but we function within that realm. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the time-space thing uh, before I get to the end. But I wanted to mention that, and mentioning the fact that she's an aspect of Maya, the illusion of the world. So it's the world illusion, but it's also the one that you need to participate in. You can't, you, you, you can recognize something as being Maya and still participate in it, okay? That's really the key. It's not a matter of rejecting it because it's illusory. You know, it's why I think the platonic stuff gets on my nerves a little bit. It's like, I mean, Plato does talk about forms and about density and, you know, things like that, but... It kind of gets on my nerves that somehow, because all of that isn't real, you have to avoid it. I'm like, do you actually are you actually capable of knowing what's real? That's that's my thing. Is anybody really capable of that? So, uh, you know, that's another thing to think about here. Um, and I also have a note here about the mantra Chim, which connects the heart with the infinite space of consciousness. And Chim is the sound because, again, as I as I mentioned in another one of the podcasts. Um, the sound is actually a more accurate representation of the goddess than the picture that you see. The anthropomorphic image, that sort of picture, and, and, and the gods, as I think I've said, look really weird because the idea is that even though we try to identify them with ourselves, and maybe there are aspects of them that we can identify with, they're not like us. They're, they're a different kind of force altogether. And, um, you know, the fact that they have like 10 arms and, you know, <clears throat> you know carrying certain things or sitting on, you know, you know, in weird places on stuff, that's because they're not, they're not people, you know? Um, and, and you need to recognize that you're dealing with a force. It's a force that, that pervades you as well. See, in, in Eastern thought, the divine pervades everything. This is not something transcendent that sits away. This is a goddess. Bhuvaneshwari is the physical world. Bhuvaneshwari is in you and in everything around you. I mean, you're not, um, <clears throat> that's, you know, that's how it is. It's not separate from us. It's not, and not like we, I think in the Western myth, um, the biblical one, it's not corrupt. Nature isn't corrupt. Nature is a thing that, um, is very powerful and knows better than we do. Um, that's why I said, I'm going, we're going through this whole coronavirus thing. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? Nature knows better. Nature's like all these people are, you know, these, these, these humans are destroying things. We're going to put them out of the way for a little while and we're going to clean things up. You know, I mean, well, I don't know if that's what she says, but, you know, but the idea is just that we, we don't, um, nature balances herself out. And I kind of look at that as, you know, as, as terrible as the suffering is with that, um, part of that is just the consequence of our bad actions of, of our, you know, mistreatment and, um, you know, taking and not giving. Um, that's the whole idea is that you don't just take, 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 you, know, you take, 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 eventually there's nothing left if nothing's ever replenished. Okay. Um, 
And in order to do that, you have to have a sense of connecting. To, you have to realize that you're connected to everybody else. And that's what Hrim has to do with. It connects the heart to everything else. So if you are not connected um, and you just think that this is all about you and what you want and what you're entitled to, um, you know, those are the people I'm finding now who are having a problem. Those are the people who um, I don't I don't care. No, no stupid government's going to tell me what to do. I'm going to go out and do what I want. And I'm like, yeah, okay, so in the meantime, you're going to harm other people because you're going to expose yourself and expose them. And then um, and, and it's amazing how many of these people I'm finding are dropping dead themselves. I'm like, well, I don't know what the heck you expected. But, you know, this whole idea of, um, you know, what, you know, um, you know I'm, I'm not sacrificing myself for somebody else. And I'm like, well, you know what, you're, all you have to do is, is stay home. And I realize economically the difficulties, but if nothing's open, you're fighting against that doesn't really help. So... In any case, it's certainly been a lesson in understanding your connection to other people. And some people get it, and some people really don't. I find it really interesting that it's people in the churches who don't seem to get it. They're the ones who are suing. I, I, we should be able to congregate and have our, um, our, you know, um, our Sunday you know, masses or sermons. I don't know so much about masses. I don't know that the Catholic churches are really fighting against this, but certainly a lot of the Protestant congregations are. And it's like, you're idiot, you know, you're being idiotic. I mean, you know, there's, but that's the, that's the attitude. Jesus is better than nature. Jesus will protect us. No, he won't. You're, nobody's better than nature. Um, and and there, that's kind of the mystery there. You know, you're, you're not, you're not going to overcome this by saying, you know, by, by fighting it directly. It's just not going to happen. Um, you have to back off and, um, you know, let nature do its thing. Um, you have, you know, you basically have to yield. There isn't anything to do but yield. I mean, you don't have to yield, but then you're probably going to be dead. Or you're going to be taking up a hospital space of somebody who's less stupid than you are. So, you know, um, it, it just really, I, I just, you know, I understand people's antsiness and, you know, worrying about money and stuff. I mean, God, we're all worried about that now. How long is this going to go on? But by the same token, you, there's really nothing you can do but sit and wait. And we're not good as that as a society. We're a machine, you know, and uh, we act like a machine or everybody's supposed to be machines. Work, 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 work all the time. Um, and uh, it's like going, eh, no, no, you're not going to. You're not going to do that. Um, it's like when a hurricane comes, what are you going to do? Stand and shake your fist at the hurricane and going, screw you. You know, you're not going to take my house. Yeah, OK, <laughs> you could say that. Um, but anyway. The connecting with the heart, and the heart connects you. When you connect at the heart level, you connect with the consciousness around you, which is connected to everybody else. Um, okay. Now, let me say a little bit more about Bhuvaneshwari. I have some reflections here, because again, there's not many stories about her. This is something from something called Mahavidya.ca. Um, so it looks like it's a, um, I think that means a Canadian site on the Mahavidyas. Um, <clears throat> okay. They say, Bhuvaneshvati is particularly associated with the earth and creation and provides the energy needed for existence in life. She is believed to embody each of the five elements, or bhutas, and to have an intimate connection to the physical world, prakriti. Bhuvaneshvati can manifest as mountains, stars, rivers, or anything. She is pervasive in the physical world. She is also known as Bhuvana, mistress of the world, Sarveshi, mistress of all, Sarvarupa, she whose form is all, and Vishvarupa, she who is form, whose form is the world, to name a few. Unlike some of the other Mahavidyas, Mahavidya did not, I'm sorry, Bhuvaneshvari did not have a widespread cult or following prior to being incorporated as one of the ten. Bhuvaneshvari is beautiful with a smiling face, flowing, flowing back black hair, and a golden complexion. 
Sometimes she's described as having a red or bluish pallor. Her features are feminine, a small nose, large eyes, and full red lips. Her breasts are full and leaking milk, emphasizing the motherly role that she plays in the cosmos. In one myth, Shiva grew a third eye so he could appreciate her beauty more. Her smiling and gentle demeanor is in contrast to some of the other Mahavidyas, um, who are still beautiful, but more fearsome, as we know. Um, the formidable nature of Tripura Sundari, Bervi, Matangi, and Bhuvaneshwari are mentioned, but not much emphasis is placed on their feature. Well, Bervi, I think, uh, she's a little bit mixed, but I think, I, I don't know if I agree with him on that one, but he, or whoever wrote this, but, um, but, but Bhuvaneshwari, certainly, and Kamala, of course, is, is considered almost entirely benevolent, although, as we'll see, she's also listed with some fierce aspects. Okay, <clears throat> Bhuvaneshwari's beauty is said to reflect the beauty of creation and, and the physical world. She is gracious, kind, giving the world all it needs to survive. She protects creation and fights against sources of disorder, restoring the cosmic balance so that the world may thrive. Bhuvaneshwari is said to have developed a third eye to better watch over creation. Often she will appear in different manifestations to slay demons and restore balance. Now, in their conclusion, they say Bhuvaneshwari plays a minor, if any, role within the Hindu tradition. Her role becomes somewhat more prominent within tantric worship, but she is still a minor goddess. Other Mahavidya goddesses receive more attention in both, such as Kali and Kamala, um, despite their important function in the world, right, in spite Bhuvaneshwari's important function, writings on her are few and far between, uh, and almost never studied or worshipped outside the group of Mahavidyas. So, which the writer says is unfortunate, because she's quite pivotal in <clears throat> the reality. But the thing is, it's just the goddess who is nature, who is the physical reality. Um, generally, if, if there's going to be any kind of a story or a drama about her, it's usually going to be her taking a different form. Just as we see her as a form of Tripura Sundari, um, Bhuvaneshwari, you know, as in nature, she can take any form. So it's not that these are necessarily um, separated. Although, again, all the gods have their thousand names, Stotras, and so forth. So um, there's probably other aspects. But as we've said with the other um, Mahavidyas, uh, you'll see that there's a lot of overlap there. They're not, um, they move back and forth between, uh, <clears throat> what you call it, there, there's a lot of overlap between um, these different goddesses, because in some senses they're manifestations of the same shakti, the same reality. So you will see, and, and sometimes different goddesses will be called by the same names. So that's, you know, so that's probably largely the case with Bhuvaneshvidi. Um, okay, so I think I've said this. Uh, I see her as sort of the, um, you know, the manifestation of the first three Mahavidyas. Like if they represent... Um, the foundations of reality, she's sort of the, the, the space foundations of the material world. Um, so, and she's also, like I said, connected with the void, but uh, in the, it, just as Dumavati is, Dumavati is that space, like right after death, that sort of void space. Um, but Bhuvaneshvati is sort of one step ahead of that. She's, um, she has to do with uh, that void that exists just as just as creation is about to happen. So Dumavati is sort of like right at the end, right at, right at the moment, of, right after death, and Bhuvaneshwari is about the void just as life begins. So, or new beginning, or whatever you want, however you want to think about it. Um, okay, so let me just give some, some other reflections on her, uh, 
maybe some maybe some final ones here. Although you know me, I tend to I tend to go on a little bit as I as I get into this. Um, okay, well, the worship of her, uh, those who do actually um, propitiate her or make offerings, are you know she's generally considered auspicious that she offers abundance and nourishment and support to those who um, who are devoted to her. Um, she we don't hear of a specifically ferocious aspect, but as we know. Um, I mean, other than what the one one description that we have that kind of gives her a kind of a, a potential warrior kind of nature, but that would be more of a form she would take to fight something that's an imbalance, and that's what I think that that's probably the most ferocious form that she would take is when things are out of balance, she will do what it takes to correct the imbalance, um, and that's probably a good way to think of nature in general. You know, as I think, and I know I'm I don't want to be too repetitive in these, but I have said before. If you, um, you know, when we think about natural disasters that occur or pandemics or things like that, you may think of nature as being monstrous or being evil in some way. It's like, well, you know what? No, those things aren't evil. Those things are, you know, these are these are natural things that occur. Uh, I know there's always been a tendency, you know, certainly among pagan peoples of the past to say, oh, how, how did we anger that God? Um, and the real question there is, how do we put things out of balance? How do we put them back into balance? Because it's a, just a case of actions having consequences. It's not a personal thing. Nature doesn't personally attack you. You do stuff, and stuff happens to you. That's kind of how it goes. Um, <clears throat> and again, her only distinguishing characteristics have to do with control. And like I said, whatever else that might suggest, there seems to be an idea of not only natural law, but just the idea of... Um, as I've said, the, the paradox that in order to be free, you have to be limited. Um, in order to be liberated, um, you have to experience non-liberation. Um, it was like in the Tara story, you know, the sage who they say, in order for you to achieve true knowledge, you have to uh, immerse yourself in all of those things that you've renounced. So, um, <clears throat> so she's definitely um, is sort of part of this, you know, the idea of you know, control on both sides of that. It's not that one way is right and one isn't. It's just a matter of your experience and your consciousness and, and how you relate to that, to that more supreme consciousness. Okay. Um, now, the last thing I think I wanted to reflect on here is the nature of space and time in myth and religion. Um, because again, Bhuvaneshwari, I think the most fascinating characteristic about her is that she represents space as Kali represents time. And if you look at um, the mythologies of the West, okay, so if you go back to Hesiod in the Greek, you have this, um, it's not really about the creation of mortals, but it is about the creation of, um, of the universe as such, where you have the myth of Oranus and Gaia. Um, you know, you have the four, you know, the four things that come out of chaos, four or five. What is it? I think I've mentioned them. They're, they're Nyx, uh, Nyx, Erebus, uh, Tartarus, uh, and Eros. And um, also Gaia as well, because Gaia is also, um, you know, emerges from the chaos. She's not born from any other other parent. So you have this deep darkness that's born, but you also have Eros, which is this drive or desire. Now, um, as the gods come into being, uh, as, as Gaia begins to give birth to these, these forces in the universe, um, Orano, some of them he doesn't like, so he stuffs, tries to stuff them back, you know, as my... Um, dissertation director had once said she says yeah that's kind of like trying to give birth to a baby and having your husband try to shove it back or your, or your boy whoever trying to shove it back into your uh, womb 
And Gaia, of course, doesn't really appreciate this, so she asks for help. And her son Kronos steps up and, you know, <clears throat> says, yeah, I'll help. So she gives him a sickle, and when Oranos comes to mate with her, she, you know, well, um, Kronos cuts his genitals off. And then there's a whole big thing. They fall into the sea. They make all these giants. They make the goddess Aphrodite. He retreats, and he doesn't return to the Earth. So now Earth and sky are separate. Now you have a field of space and time, right? You have this field of uh, where sky and Earth are not united. They're separated. And who separates them? Kronos, time. Okay? So you have this idea of um, that, that connection there. Even the Garden of Eden story. Okay? In the story of the Garden of Eden... Um, everybody walk, they all, you know, humans are created and they walk in the garden with Yahweh. Now, where is Yahweh? Where is the Garden of Eden? Garden of Eden is, is more of a mental construct. It's outside of space and time. It has nothing to do with the world. It's, it's a field of eternity. And you know this because out of all the trees in the garden, there's one that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the thing that separates it and puts you into the field of time. Because good and evil are opposites. When you know opposites, you know difference. When you know difference, you are in a field of space and time. Okay? But see, <clears throat> rather than looking at that story as, oh no, look what those stupid humans did. Look what that dumb woman did eating that apple and listening to the serpent. The serpent is there. The serpent's the kundalini. Okay? In, that, in, 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 another, in another way of looking at this. Um, it, certainly in Gnosticism, she's the co that the serpent's the cosmic Sophia. It's the idea that you, um, it's telling you, Look, um, you know, in order to be, um, it's not so much about learning that you're divine, but putting you into the field uh, of life. You're not, the Garden of Eden is not living. That's not life. That's something outside of time and outside of, you know, normal space. It's, you know, as soon as they eat the apple and they know difference, or whatever fruit it is, I've been told, it's not an apple, but, you know, whatever. They're, when they eat the forbidden fruit, now, now they're in the. Now they know male and female. You know they know they know difference, but that is your experience of the world, and there and as part of that, because everything is measured out, your life is also measured out, and you know death. Okay, you know birth, and you know the suffering of birth and the suffering of death. They both, you know, and and but the thing is, it's almost treated in that myth as a bad thing, as a corrupt thing, and that sort of informs the way that we look at things in the West. You know, we, you know, there's the idea of, you know, God set Adam over nature. So we tend to think that we are superior to nature. You're not. Um, and the idea that um, <clears throat> once Adam and Eve did that, they, they were sent to a lesser condition, a condition of life. Life shouldn't be lesser. Um, the metaphor is just simply that, um, yes, the woman puts you into the field of life because the woman's the one who usually gives birth. Um, but it's not necessarily an evil, and to view it that way is to, you know, this is why I'm saying the Western view to me is too stilted, and it's, it, it focuses too much on the difference and treats the difference as something to lament. It doesn't treat the difference as um, something to be celebrated. And here we're saying, okay, all of it's to be celebrated because all of it is part of something that's ultimately one. The idea that you see it as separate is an illusion. And Bhuvaneshvati is kind of the center of that. She's the illusion that makes you see things separately because she's the physical world. But Bhuvaneshvati is also, um, you know, that which is beyond that manifestation. She is also unmanifest and represents what happens when you lift the veil of Maya.
<clears throat> and again, the fact that it's Maya doesn't make it bad. It's not like, oh no, poor you walking around deluded. It does no, you're you're here to live your life and to be in tune with the flow of nature and the rhythm of things and to enjoy yourself. You know, we we, we place all of these other um you know, we're ashamed of things. We place all these ethical things on ourselves. Uh, I mean, some of them we, we need to place on ourselves, right? You know, there's certain, you know, order that we have to society. Laws are there for a reason, you know. You know, we have to restrict ourselves for certain reason. That's another aspect of Bhuvaneshvari. But by the same token, um, you know, our lives would probably be a lot happier if we just accepted everything as being, you know, part of how it is. And, you know, um, <clears throat> and allowed ourselves to just experience what we're going to experience. So, um, you know, that's certainly a very Taoist way of looking at things. If you look at Taoism, it's just sort of like, okay, when, when you're, <clears throat> you, know, thing, thing, you know, things are going to run along, but they're going to go out of balance occasionally, and that's okay. You know, you just have to do things to bring them back into balance. Um, not, they're not, it's not always pleasant. Um, to use Joseph Campbell's expression, you know, it, life is like a big opera, only it hurts. Um, it's kind of weird, but yeah, the idea is that, you know, you participate in life. You don't just say, oh, it's all an illusion. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be involved in this. Well, well you are because you're part of it. You know, you're, you're part of the illusion too. And, uh, this is also, like I said, why when people have very different or very weird points of view, um, I may not see it, but I'm just like, okay, well, you know, that's, that's where they're coming from because, um, and do I know everything? Well, no, nobody does. You know, we, we don't. So anyway, those are my those are my thoughts on Bhuvaneshvari. Um, you know, hopefully I'm not it wasn't too rambly in this one, um, but but I find it. But I, I think it gives us some interesting things to think about about the nature of reality, about how restriction provides freedom, and about our relationship to the material world. And on that note, uh, I'm going to say uh, thank you again for listening. Uh, thank you to my patrons. Uh, if you um, would like to follow this. Uh, you know, support this podcast and some of my other projects, you check out Cthonia.net. My Patreon is at patreon.com slash Cthonia. Um, if you don't want to commit to kind of a monthly um, Patreon, then there's a donation button on Cthonia.net on the homepage in the right column. And all my social media links are on Cthonia.net as well. Um, on the YouTube version, I also have the Metapsychosis site listed. Metapsychosis, um, which is part of Cosmos Co-op, very generously hosts this podcast for me. Um, so you could also go there and you may find the other things, you know, my podcast is there, but you may also find other things of interest or or other, um, you know, book groups or conversations that you might want to participate in there. So that's worth a look. And, um, my social media, um, I'm Cthonia podcast, um, one word on Instagram and Twitter, uh, two words on Facebook and just Cthonia on YouTube. On YouTube, I also have the Liminal Tarot series and, um, through related services on Cthonia.net, you can also link to my Reiki and tarot services. Um, I'm, I'm trying to do a little bit more with those and to provide um, some online uh, readings about current events, and I'm going to probably do a little bit more on Instagram too with that as well. So um, so lots coming up, um, and if you're a patron, you'll be in, in the thick of all of it, and you'll get, um, you get certain benefits uh, for that as well. So with that, thank you very much, and uh, till the next episode. <laughs>